The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good day from California. Today we'll be discussing medical malpractice. I'm honored to have Paul Friedman, a nationally recognized attorney from Arizona, to discuss this uh, really important topic. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Francie. How are you? I'm great. How's the weather in uh, Arizona today? It is a balmy 70 degrees today with sunny skies here in Arizona. I'm sure people across the nation are saying, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. I think California and Arizona are probably the places to be today. Exactly right. Boy, is that the truth. And we actually had rain uh, two days ago, believe it or not. So, of course, that was probably the rainfall for the year, (laughs) the way it's going. (laughs) But um, so, Paul, I know you're a partner with uh, the Arizona law firm of Osteen and Harrison, but you have somewhat of an unusual specialty, I think. Well, I have specialized my practice mostly in ethics, and I handle medical malpractice and traumatic brain injury cases on a on a pretty pervasive scale. Wow, that's uh, that's kind of huge. And so you've also been you've been an adjunct professor uh, to a couple of universities. You teach you teach medical providers, healthcare providers. Yeah, my my teaching has been mostly at the uh, the medical schools, and what happened was after I graduated from law school, I was involved in the tobacco case for the state of Arizona, and then had a case which was a national case against what's now Tenet Healthcare out of Santa Barbara, which was at that time National Medical Enterprises, and they had about 670 cases uh, nationwide where they were falsely institutionalizing people in hopes of getting mostly government insurance policies. And so mm. uh, it was an interesting case. And, and during that case, I ended up hiring a, a bioethicist or a medical ethicist out of Utah who just encouraged me to go back and, and look into the field. And at that time, it was a fledgling field, and it still is. And so I went back to school and, and got an advanced degree in in uh, bioethics or medical ethics. So you have a JD and you have a master of arts in bioethics. And then, then you got, (laughs) this just blows my mind. Uh, We're going to have a whole show just on your credentials, but you received a doctorate of philosophy with honors, by the way, (laughs) from lacrosse. Um, And an interesting topic for your dissertation too, I think. Well, it was, you know, I mean, as 
as an attorney, attorneys are, are what we call casuists, and that's a philosophy uh, theory in which we look at past decisions to determine what future conduct should be like. And so my whole dissertation from there was was kind of from that theory with regard to comparing ethics of physicians, healthcare providers, attorneys, and in the business world. Okay, you have to tell me what casuist means. Well, casuist is, is just that. It's, it's looking at prior cases to, time, to de- determine what future conduct is, is going to be acceptable. I see. So huh. in, in law, what we do is we, we look at prior cases and we think, what's the judge going to do in the present case? And we look at prior decisions that come up from the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, either the state or the federal system. And that's what establishes what we call common law. And so common mm-hmm. law is what we go by when we're practicing law. And when we go into trial, we have to know what the common law is so we know how the judge is going to rule or, or what we believe the judge should rule. I see. Okay. And then you are uh, admitted in not only Arizona, um, s- state and district court, and uh, Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, United States Supreme Court. Um, you've just got so many things going on here. I have to say to our listeners, Paul's bio is at least a page long. <laughs> um, As you're I also told in- Francie, it looks good on paper, but it definitely <laughs> doesn't correlate to the real world. So, Well, uh, but I was also interested in, um, you've gotten involved in document examination. Is that right? Well... As as a side note, what I do is I teach a what we call a CFC course, which is a Certified Forensic Consulting course for um, ACFEI, which is the American College of Forensic Examiners Institute. And a large part of that is teaching uh, experts in different fields how to actually testify in court. So uh, a large portion of the ACFEI involves documents, um, individuals that, that, you know, go through and they authenticate documents or private investigators or police, you know, individuals or accident reconstructions or any type of field. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. And, and of course, there's all kinds of rules that apply around surrounding like the, the Kelly Fry uh, rule and those kind of things that uh, you must cover in those classes. Right. There's, you know, the old the older rule is the Fry rule. Now it's the Daubert or Daubert rule, depending on whether you come from Louisiana or from the rest of the country. And uh, so you have to understand those rules as well. But essentially, you know, anybody can be an expert as long as they have a knowledge base that is not common to a jury. And so what the new rules, the Daubert rule is, is that essentially it has to be accepted within the community in which you're testifying. So it has to be based on the scientific uh, proof if it's in a scientific field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't in a scientific field, you could be uh, like a motorcycle mechanic and testify on motorcycle processes. No example. doubt about it. In fact, I yeah. had a case where I had uh, a guy who had a flat tire or a tire that came off of his off of his car after he was in after he took it in for a flat tire, and uh, we ended up having to sue the uh, place where he had it done, and we had a mechanic come in to testify as to what would happen if it wasn't put on properly. Yeah. 
Okay. So it could be any field whatsoever, and essentially everybody's an expert in some field. Okay. All right. So um, and now I'm going to mention a few of these things, Paul, because I know you won't, because you've gotten all these recognitions, like uh, named a super lawyer in 2007, top 100 trial lawyer, lawyers since 2010, uh, nationally ranked top 10 attorneys by the National Academy of Personal Injury Attorneys. Um, it just goes on and on. 10 best attorney in Arizona in 2014. Premier 100 civil trial attorneys by the American Academy of Trial Attorneys in 2015. It just goes on and on. Other than all of your degrees, you have all of these recognitions. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for mentioning that. That's nice. <laughs> okay. So, so, Paul, while I was researching the topic of medical malpractice, I found that the Journal of uh, American Medical Association said that medical negligence is the third leading cause of death right. in the U.S. Um, following cancer and heart disease. That's amazing. Well, it is. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad because I think that we, you know, we trust physicians just as we trust attorneys or accountants or anybody else. But when it comes to medicine, you know, you're really putting your life on the line with somebody. And so, you know, the key thing that I would say is that you really need to do some research. You know, we research buying and selling cars to the extreme, and yet <laughs> right. we don't really put that kind of effort into determining whether a physician that we're going to see who has our life, you know, in his or her hands is really qualified to do what they say they're going to do. Well, that's an interesting analogy, too. So what is... What is actually medical malpractice? So medical malpractice, you know, another word for it is just negligence, and that's negligence involving uh, medicine. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, every time I go through trial, I learn something new. And when I was more of a puppy lawyer 20-some years ago, I went through a trial, and we got to the end of it, and the jury did not find in my, my client's um, favor found for for the opposite party which was the defense mm-hmm. and the comment from them afterward was well we didn't think that the defendant was negligent but we thought that he did something wrong and so it huh. kind of put a big light bulb over my head that doing something wrong really is negligence and that that's kind of the definition of of what it is and so Medical malpractice would be a physician or healthcare provider of some sort, doesn't have to be a physician, that essentially does something wrong. They're below the standard of care within the community. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and what I learned, um, I think I was mentioning offline that I, uh, about three years ago, I assisted a friend of mine, also a fellow investigator, uh, to find a uh, medical malpractice attorney, and what I learned was just because somebody makes a mistake doesn't necessarily mean it's malpractice. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's true. You know, some mistakes are acceptable mistakes, and that's probably in any field, um, but certainly in medicine. Well, first of all, we have an axiom, and and the first one is that a bad result doesn't mean that somebody did something wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could go through uh, an operation and you just don't have a good result. It doesn't mean that the physician or the hospital or any provider did anything wrong. It just means mm-hmm. that it, it wasn't the result that, that 
they hope to attain at the end of it. And then, you know, there's other times where um, there are acceptable risks for certain types of, of treatment. You know, when you go in and you have um, a colonoscopy, there's a possibility that they're going to perforate your colon. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they necessarily did anything wrong, mm-hmm. but that's, that is a risk. And so what we need to do is we need to determine whether they did something wrong in perforating the colon or not. So that's an example of, of things that, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people. Right. So, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, I think the general pub- public thinks that medical malpractice is against attorneys, but it can also be uh, the nursing staff, the medical facility. It could be uh, actually filed against a number of entities, couldn't it? Well, a medical malpractice case could be against a dentist. Um, Mm -hmm. It could be against nurses. It could be against a hospital. It could be against a psychologist. It could be against almost anyone that practices within a healthcare license. And so each state has defined their different healthcare licenses. And, you know, each state's medical malpractice laws are essentially, um, they're essentially the same universally, but every state has their own nuance of, of what medical malpractice is. Okay. And so really what you're looking for is a violation of the standard of care. You're looking for a violation of the standard of care that actually causes an injury. So, um, you know, it's not enough, and and we get calls all the time from potential clients that, you know, we're treated poorly, and being treated poorly, in in my view as a bioethicist, would be below the standard of care, but it doesn't necessarily cause them any type of of harm. And and especially Mm -hmm. in this day and age, uh, with specialized attorneys, um, just as you have specialized doctors, it, you really have to be cautious in who it is that you select as an attorney if you believe that you have a malpractice case. Um, one example that I would give you is that attorneys, just as physicians, are board certified. And so if somebody comes, you know, yesterday somebody call, called me and they asked me about a trust. And mm-hmm. I can tell you that the last time that I saw anything that had to do with the trust was when I was in law school, you know, over 25 years ago. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to tell them about a trust. Right. Um, you know, and the same is true if they have a malpractice case. If, if they're calling a trust attorney, that trust attorney probably doesn't know what he or she is doing any more than I know what, what, what should go into a trust. So it's important that you go out and you find an attorney that is certified in the area in which you're seeking legal counsel. Um, there yeah. are certified attorneys in, in uh, medical malpractice. They're, they're generally certified attorneys in civil trial practice. And there are national organizations like the National Board of Trial Advocacy or the American Board of Trial Advocates, which have national certifications. And then some states, uh, including California and Arizona, have uh, specialty certifications. You know, that's such good advice because I, I see that because I, I'm in the criminal defense world um, where a civil attorney will take a, a, has a client that has a criminal, maybe a minor criminal defense issue, but my, but a criminal defense issue, and they handle that. And 
sometimes it's really ugly. <laughs> right. Well, you you know, it's like going to a podiatrist to to have a proctology <laughs> examination. You know, right. you you want to make sure that you're within that subspecialty. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so Paul, when a client comes to your office, we've we've got a couple of minutes here before break. But when a client comes to your office with a claim, where do you start? Well, you know, it's interesting and. There's a few things I'd like to say before that. One okay. is that um, if you select a really good medical malpractice attorney, they've thoroughly screened your case before they probably would even sit down and, and, and consider mm-hmm. taking it. And so I want to make sure because we put a lot of money on the line in medical malpractice cases since we work on a contingency generally. Right. That we want to make sure that it's a case that is going to um, it's going to be beneficial for both the person who was harmed as well as for you know the law firm that takes it. Because when I take a case and I'm litigating a case, and most medical malpractice cases get litigated, it could cost you know me and my firm somewhere between a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars to litigate a case. Right. And yeah. Uh, if I'm doing it on a, on a contingency, I'm putting that money um, of mine on the line, you know, for the end. And these cases can take, you know, uh, from four to six years from the time that a client comes in until the resolution of the case. So these are not fast cases. These are long, drawn-out cases. And when I'm looking at a case, I want to make sure that my client knows that, any type of case in litigation is just a horrible existence. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's going to be strenuous for the client. Um, they're going to be demoralized when they go in and they're they're meeting the attorneys on the other side. Regardless mm-hmm. of how nice the other attorneys are, they're going to feel victimized when mm-hmm. when that happens. If it goes through to a to a trial, you're relying on eight to twelve members of the general public that you don't know have never known to make a decision that's going to affect your future. So it's really important that a client understands before they get involved with any medical malpractice case or any personal injury case that this is, as in opposition to what the general public thinks, this is just a horrible avenue to have to, you know, go through. Okay. So, all right. Paul, let's take a break real quick because we need to do that and we'll come right back. Okay. More to come with attorney Paul Friedman. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. If you just joined the show, my guest is Paul Friedman, an expert in traumatic brain and birth injuries, uh, birth injury cases, ethics, and professional malpractice. And Paul, you brought up an excellent point about how much it costs to pursue a case like this. So an attorney really has to believe that they have a, you know, probably an 80% chance of prevailing on the case um, because there's so much money you have to lay out ahead of time. Well, let me give you some alarming statistics. Okay. Um, the first is that, you know, in normal personal injury cases, maybe t- 10 to 20% get, actually go to trial. In medical malpractice cases, you're closer to 40 or 50% of the cases that actually go to trial. So your chances of actually going to trial are much greater in a medical malpractice case. And the reason is twofold. One is that jurors generally love physicians as well they should. Mm-hmm. And the second is that generally physicians have a right to refuse any settlement negotiations. So when you get, you know, unfortunately a physician that may have committed malpractice, but the ego gets in the way, those are the type of cases that are going to get tried. Mm-hmm. The second statistic is that nine out of 10 medical malpractice cases end up with a verdict in favor of the medical practitioner. And again, that's because generally the, you know, the public loves um, the practitioners. They're not overly fond of attorneys, and, and generally mm-hmm. for, for some good reasons, they're not a fond of attorneys. And, and I think the general concept is that juries believe that people are trying to make a fast buck off of the back of this poor physician who now has to pay four times the amount of malpractice insurance and mm-hmm. and is going to be put out of business by by medical malpractice and you know that's that's really kind of a false conception but that is the conception that's out there yeah and i and i think i don't think people realize paul that that you folks, if you on a medical malpractice, for instance, you hi- have to hire experts because somebody has to explain to the jury what's going on. So that means the money for those experts, which is very high cost, has to come out of your pocket in advance. 
Right. And if you and don't so, prevail, <laughs> that's then, gone. Then the, generally the attorney ends up eating that money. And yeah. uh, I can tell you I have lost a medical malpractice case in in my practice. Um, it probably cost me somewhere around $125,000. And, you know, you do it once or twice and you're, you end up in bankruptcy. So yeah. it's you, you really have to be selective. And so it kind of comes back to your question before about, you know, how, what's the dynamics of a malpractice case? Yeah. Uh, when the the way that I generally generate cases is either through the internet, um, word of mouth through other attorneys, and that's how I get most of my cases is through other attorneys, or, you know, or people just blindly calling on the telephone. Um, mm-hmm. So what will happen is I've got a screener in medical malpractice cases. This is what she does. She's worked for me for about nineteen and a half years. And she oh. spends her days screening calls, screening medical malpractice calls. And uh, we get somewhere in the north of 400 calls per year. Uh-huh. Out of those 400 calls, she will do an in-depth intake. I review all of those intakes. Um, I tell her which ones I think have promise or we want to follow, or she'll tell me which ones she thinks have promise or that she thinks that we should follow. Mm-hmm. And out of that, we may, out of the 400, we may actually start following 10. And out of those 10, I will go and I will hire an expert to take a look at it, and I will outlay the money up front. Uh, and sometimes even before I meet with the client, I will hire an expert to take a look at a case. Mm-hmm. Um, generally then, if we think that the case has promise, and I've either had it reviewed by somebody outside or, or I've reviewed it because I do enough of these that I think I have a pretty good nose for what's a good case or not, I'll ask the client to come in, and before I have reviewed all of their records, I'll ask them to explain the case to me. And it's important for me to have a client that can articulate a case or that's likable. Because if, if, the, if the person comes in and they're not likable, I'm just not going to take their case. I'm not going to spend the money um, litigating a case for somebody that I don't think that my staff is going to get along with or I'm going to get along with or at the end of the day that a jury is going to like. Because that's the recipe for disaster in our area. Yeah. So. If I like them and I think that they have a meritorious case, I'll sign them up. Uh, we generally do them on contingency, which means that if we don't get anything at the end of the day, they don't, they don't end up paying me a dime. Mm-hmm. And then I'm the one who forwards all the money. And, you know, in some cases, I've got seven or eight practitioners on the other end of a case, which means I've got to hire seven or eight different experts just on standard of care alone. And then I have to hire an expert generally on causation, and I have to hire experts for damages. So there are cases. I'm in fact, I'm I'm. We're getting a trial set on a case right now where um, there's. I, I've got probably twelve different experts in the case, and and I'm well into over a quarter of a million dollars into the case, and we don't even have a trial date set yet. Wow, that's amazing. So, what are the components of a valid claim? Well, the person, you know, for me, and I can't answer for other medical malpractice attorneys what I'm looking for, right? because my bent is, is in the ethics world. I'm looking for more egregious behavior, and I'm doing that because I teach uh, medical practitioners, physicians, psychologists, 
And I don't, I don't want a case that I think is marginal. First of all, I don't okay. want to go bankrupt on a case. And two is, I think that, you know, life is hard enough and we shouldn't have to worry about lawsuits that are just not nuisance lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking at egregious behavior and, and I'm looking generally at cases where the, there's some unethical behavior. And I can't tell you how many times people have called me and the whole reason that they're calling an attorney in the first place is because they want to know what happened. They just they have no understanding of what happened and their practitioner isn't being honest with them. And yeah. so when I'm teaching physicians, you know, if you get a bad result, if something bad happens, you need to sit down and be honest with, with, with the patient. You owe them a responsibility of trust and respect. And mm-hmm. we, all, we all make mistakes. And mm-hmm. I've made mistakes throughout my practice. Uh, I don't know anyone that has not made a mistake. Right. A mistake d- doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that something bad happened and, you know, it, it was, there was something that you did wrong. And so if that's the case, I think a lot of medical malpractice cases can be um, removed if the practitioner is just honest with with the patient in the first place and says, here's what happened. And, you know, a prime example of this is Ohio, where they changed the law to have an apology law where, you know, a, a practitioner could say, I'm sorry about this and tell them what happened and it can't be used against them in litigation. Mm, and what yeah, happened was lawsuits went down because people felt that they were being respected, that they were being tell, told the truth and they had a better understanding of what happened. So, mm-hmm. You know, it's unfortunate, you know, when egos get in the way, but um, we, all, we all don't want to be culpable for our, our actions. But, right. you know, there is, we have to be accountable for the things that we do. And, and unfortunately, we all make mistakes. So what would be an example of an egregious claim? Well, um, you know, I've got, I've got a case right now, and I'm not going to mention names, but right. it's, a, it's a public record, and so I'm going to talk about it. Um, it, it's a case where we believe that a physician took advantage of a young child. The child came in and um, came in with a tooth carry, which is a tooth cavity, uh-huh. and it had resulted, it, it had gone on for two days, and it had resulted in an infection in the canine space of the young child. And a physician came in and told the parents that he needed to go in to have the tooth removed. And once he did that, he also did something called a debridement, which is scraping actual bone of the child, and then, uh, which wasn't, in our view, necessary. And it was done, in our view, just to secure insurance benefits. Mm. And the child ended up in a second debridement with and desaturated during that and ended up with medical expenses in north of $500,000 wow. because he came into the hospital with a tooth cavity. So, Amazing. You know, that's the kind of case where it would just, in my view, shock any individual and it really put this, this little child at risk, you know, and the child could have easily you know, succumbed to it and died during his, his long course in the hospital. It, just, it gives me chills just you listening to explain it. 
Yeah, Ooh, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a sad reality, but, you know, and it's, Francie, it's, it's like I told you during the break, you know, 5% of, of medical or legal practitioners commit 95% of legal or uh, medical malpractice. Yeah. And, yeah. It, you know, I, when I view tort reform, I view it as we need to get rid of the bad practicers. The mm-hmm. ones that are doing these type of things are the ones that need to go. And that is true of lawyers as well as medical practitioners. I think that, you know, that would be the tort reform that we need is, is to get, is to have our governing boards. And I don't know if people know this, but each state has governing boards for both physicians and attorneys. And they're essentially governed by themselves. Mm-hmm. And we need to be more proactive in our governing boards and get rid of or punish those that, that need punishment. And that doesn't happen often enough, that's for sure. It, it, I, in my view, you know, and, and it's limited to the various states in which, which I've handled cases, it doesn't yeah. happen frequently enough. And, and I think that we, you know, as a profession, we try to protect our own profession. And maybe that's not the right outlook. The outlook should be to protect the public instead of, you know, protecting our own. Right. Yeah, I agree. So you mentioned tort reform. Um, I think I mentioned to you that I had a lot of difficulty finding, uh, assisting a friend of mine find a a medical malpractice attorney. Um, And that's a result of tort reform, I believe, isn't it? Well, without knowing the nuances of that case, and so, Uh you know, assuming that that was a, a good case, I can tell you that, you know, tort reform is, I, I think, as a medical malpractice attorney, that, that, that we do need to have some type of tort reform. What has been proposed um, with the prior administration was things that went on in California, Texas, Florida, Colorado, where they have what, what we call hard caps on medical malpractice cases. Mm-hmm. So th- you have to look at the reasoning why um, tort reform was established in the first place, and that is that the um, insurance industry that uh, actually handles medical malpractice cases has done a good job of um, propagandizing the AMA that their rates are high because of all these frivolous lawsuits. Mm-hmm. The reality is that frivolous lawsuits has been, have been on the decline since the 1970s. In fact, all litigation has been on the decline since the 1970s. Uh, And frivolous lawsuits are not what causes malpractice uh, rates to rise. It's legitimate claims that cause malpractice rates to rise. Because a frivolous claim, first of all, you're never going to find a qualified or you shouldn't find a qualified medical malpractice attorney that's going to take a frivolous claim. Mm-hmm. They have too much to lose in those type of cases. Again, they're outlaying their money, and if, if there's no recovery at the end, they end up eating it. But they also know better. They know that you, you, you know, a marginal claim in medical malpractice is just a recipe for disaster. So right. frivolous claims are not real prominent when it comes to medical malpractice cases. Now, the claims that end up with higher awards are claims where there's some egregious behavior and there's some significant damages. So... Tort reform is not doing anything to stop the 
the legitimate claims other than keeping attorneys from wanting to practice in that area because they can't generate enough money at the end of a case to pay for litigating it and to pay for the risk of litigating it and to pay for the experts that they have to hire to litigate. So in California, a prime example is, let's say you have, you have, you know, there's, there's Tory Forum and there's a hard cap, then it's hard to find attorneys that are willing to take cases because they're risking too much mm-hmm. to get too little at the end of it and to expose their client at the end of it. Yeah. And so what happens in states that have tort reform in medical malpractice cases, the attorneys drift away from wanting to do that type of work. And if it was the case in Arizona, I would, I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. In Texas, there has been a number of attorneys that have either left the state or gone into different fields, and it's very difficult to find an attorney in Texas that will ha- handle a medical malpractice case. And the unfortunate thing is medical malpractice case is a way – to, for juries to find social justice. It's a way, if I'm harmed during an operation and the physician does something wrong, it's a way to tell that physician, you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And now, and now there's, there's a repercussion for it. Well, if those cases are never going through because of tort reform, there's no repercussion for any right. practitioner. Yeah. So the True. ones that, that really get hurt are the ones that have the malpractice committed against them, the patients. For sure, you know, and <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's really tough because, I mean, you can see when there's a cap on the award that uh, just what you mentioned, you may, you have a quarter of a million dollars in the case you're working on right now. An ex- and outlay of expenses before you even probably have a settlement conference it sounds like um so if you have a cap then that's your cap you've already used up the cap well and 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 so that the the audience understands a cap is for non-economic damages so let's say that my client has put in has the case that i've got going on right now where i've hired all these experts that we haven't got a trial date yet um, he's probably into uh, his medical expenses are probably somewhere around seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So in Arizona, the jury's going to hear that he had health insurance and that um, you know it paid for a good portion of that seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It probably paid for over half of it, more than four hundred thousand um, dollars. And so you know they're going to determine what are his actual damages. His actual damages may be three hundred fifty thousand dollars. If we had a cap, it would mean the fact that he has now got a permanent injury, uh, a really severe permanent injury, that he's only entitled to let's say two hundred fifty thousand dollars on top of his economic damages on top of that, and then. The jury's not going to know that out of, so let's say they give an award for $2 million, and if we're in a tort reform state, it gets reduced now to the, you know, um, the, the actual damages, which are, let's say, $300,000 in medical expenses and $250,000, so $600,000. The attorney has to pay the costs out of that, so that $250,000 comes off of that, and the attorney gets paid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in medical malpractice cases, you're talking about contingency fees anywhere from 33 and a third up to 50%. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that patient who was harmed for the rest of his life walks away, you know, with less than $100,000. Yeah, yeah. 
it just yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's a hard reality, really is. It, it, it really Paul, is. we need to take another. We need to take another break. Don't go away. Paul Friedman will be right back. This is really fascinating. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Joining the show today is nationally recognized attorney Paul Friedman discussing medical malpractice. So, um, Paul, we've talked a lot about uh, what it takes to, to pursue a claim. Do you, um, do you invest? How, how do you investigate a claim? Well, if it's a medical malpractice case, uh, as opposed to a personal injury, we do that thorough review. Um, we also may look through a limited amount of records. What I do in a medical malpractice case is, is the same in every case. I actually ask the client to go get records, and mm-hmm. I do it for a number of reasons. The first is that I want to make sure that the client or the potential client is actually invested in their case. If they don't mm-hmm. want to take the time to go and get the records, then I know that this is a person that's not going to be sitting by my side for the next four years. So that's a person that, that I, I don't want as a client. The second reason is because healthcare providers um, provide a set of records to their patients. We w- we stamp them a certain way so that we know when we got them and, and who it is that got them. In other words, if it was the client, we know it was the client that got them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we review those records to do our initial determination if we want to take the case. If we decide that we either want to look into it further or want to take the case, my office will actually uh, request records by an authorization, a HIPAA release form. Mm-hmm. And generally... 
we get a different set of records than the than the patient got. Um, and I can't tell you the reason for that, but it's generally more true than not true that we end up getting a whole different set of records. Interesting. And what's interesting then is if we go through that set of records and we determine that we are going to do it, I go and hire the experts, and I have to have all of my experts on board before I file a lawsuit. Once I file a lawsuit, we get a third set of records, which comes from the attorney representing that provider. And again, more often than not, I get a completely different set of records than I got on my own or that the patient got on their own. And again, I can't tell you why that, that happens. And, <laughs> that you know, it's... <laughs> so then b- before you enter these records into court, don't you also have to have them under subpoena? Well, generally what, what, what will happen is I can't actually subpoena medical records from a party. I can subpoena medical records from a non-party, but from a party, they're supposed to actually disclose them to us. So when I get them, I can't tell you how many times I've looked through records. I've got a case right now where I've gotten now a third set of records. They're completely different. And I can tell that there's some falsified records in there. Yep. And as an ethicist, I can tell you that there's never an excuse for a falsified record. Um, You know, that's somebody that's trying to cover their they're tush, and they're the ones that are going to get hit at trial. They're, those are the ones where I'm going to get a jury upset about, you know, about the way that they practice medicine, um, because there's just never a reason why there should be a falsified record. And, and after doing this for a number of years, I have a pretty good eye of, of what's going to be falsified and not. Now, what's interesting is that now that since uh, approximately uh, 2012, when Medicare instituted that records had to be electronic, or what we call EMRs, there are now attorneys that are out there that specialize in looking through electronic medical records to determine mm. which ones are legitimate and which ones are fraudulent. Mm. And, you know, there's mm. a lot of information with electronic medical records where they can look at the metadata and see if it was inputted at a time different than what's stated on the record. So it's it's really, you know, this is fascinating. a fast-growing field. Yeah, fascinating. Well, and that's also what you just mentioned is a really good reason why your client should go get their medical records on their own right away So before anybody looks at them and decides to falsify them. And no doubt about it. And, you know, when I tell a, a patient to do that, um, I, I, my hope is that they're not going to get falsified records or they're not going, you know, it shouldn't matter to the provider whether it's for an attorney or, or for a patient. But the reality is it really does matter to them. Yeah. And yeah. when they get the letter from the attorney's office, generally it, it raises, you know, the, the, the hair on the back of their sure. neck that there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a problem going on. Right. So it, it's always best for the patient to go and get their records. And, you know, I th- I'm a strong advocate that patients should get their records regardless of whether there's malpractice or not. You know, right. we have a right to know what's in our medical records, and uh, and we should be on top of that. And and I think that because we are so trusting of the medical profession, we just believe that that you know what we're state, stating to them is what's actually going into the records. Mm-hmm. We I hope that that's true, but I think that often that's not true. 
So, it, you know, I've always found it's a good practice to go to a medical practitioner that will do the dictation right in front of me or type the notes right in front of me. And I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of practitioners now that are going to electronic medical records that will do it right in front of you, and you can ask right. them for, for a printout of it to make sure that it's accurate because we all, again, make mistakes. Yeah, that's... Um Boy, that's just such a scary thing. I mean, I I'm a, I'm actually surprised that you're we're really realizing different records from three different entities. That's you know, um, and it always it always surprises my clients when I when I tell them that to, when they come in, I say, you know, here's what's going to happen: you're going to get the records, I'm going to get a different set of records, and then if we go into litigation, we're going to get a third set of records, and. You know, they're always surprised when that's the case. And juries are generally surprised, too, because there really should only be one set of records. Exactly. Um, you know, sometimes it's an innocent, you know, you know, they may not have copied certain records for, for either me or for the patient. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Some, but, some, but I think oftentimes there's a reason why the patient isn't getting a full set of records or I'm not <laughs> getting sure. a full set yeah. of records. Well, and I, I get the same thing when uh, also often I get more thorough records when we subpoena them than when we uh, get them through a release, through a HIPAA release. Uh, and often if we call the entity and ask if they have records, they tell us they don't have any. But guess right. what? They come up with them when we subpoena them. It's really interesting how that works. You know, it's in, I absolutely agree with you, and I think subpoenas are the best way to do it if if you have the power to subpoena. Um, you know, I can tell you that I sat in a medical malpractice case years ago, and uh, I was deposing the director of nursing. We took a break. We came back, and all of a sudden, a record happened to magically appear on my chair that I had never <laughs> seen before. And, Uh (laughs) you know, I mean, this is kind of one of those aha moments where, you know, the attorneys realize that I was never provided with this magical and and very damaging record on their behalf. And it just suddenly appeared and I couldn't get anyone to admit that they had put it on my chair. So, you know, apparently the the uh, record fairy came in in the middle of the deposition <laughs> and waited for me to leave before they put it on my chair. Yeah, you can't trust those record fairies. <laughs> That's funny. So needless well, to say, that was a case that settled soon after uh, that deposition. I'm sure it did. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. So, so Paul, do you use private investigators at all? Uh, you know, Sometimes I do with medical malpractice. More so, I do with um, with uh, more personal injury type of cases, um, it, especially involving traumatic brain injuries or traumatic birth injuries, um, and it, you know, especially traumatic brain injury type of cases. I'll use private investigators to go and do the research for the accident itself or to determine, you know, what what's going on. Um, I use private investigators for locating people all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there is questionable documents, I may bring in a private investigator to determine what's going on. So there are, there are a lot of instances where we do use private investigators. And how about interviewing people? Do you use them in that way? Uh, you know, when I did personal injury, mostly personal injury cases, I, I 
was very fond of having uh, PIs do that. And the reason why I would do that is because I didn't want to become a witness in the case if if right. the witness to the accident says something different to me than they were going to say under oath. So I would have a private investigator that I trusted go and do it. And, you know, different attorneys have different styles when it comes to that. Some attorneys will say, I want you to call me back and tell me what the person is going to say before you take an interview. Or, mm-hmm. you know, some attorneys will say, go and do it. And, and you know, I'm, I'm of the belief that the facts are however the facts are. Mm-hmm. So I would generally instruct the PI to go and, and just take the interview. And if it turns out favorable, fine. And if it doesn't turn out favorable, I'd want to know that. So right. that it would be a case, you know, that I may want to not want to take. So, so uh, but on a medical malpractice, you're, uh, it's a kind of a different animal because the only people usually are involved are maybe the claimant and the family members. Well, in a in a medical malpractice, it's harder to use a private investigator because I really cannot go and talk to the medical practitioners knowing that they have probably done something wrong and are represented by, by an attorney. So mm-hmm. I can't go and, and talk to them, and I generally can't get a private investigator to go and do it because they would be doing it as my agent. So it would be generally unethical for me to do it. So mm-hmm. it happens less and less now. I do hire private investigators to go out and take statements from um, family members and you know friends to talk about the differences in what's going on. And, right. and I can use those type of reports for my various experts. I hope you've had good... Um results with private investigators. I hope <laughs> I, I hope know, you haven't had, run into bad apples there as well. I've had great results and I've had not such great re- results. Yeah. And I can yeah. tell you, a, you know, kind of a funny story. When I, uh, maybe 20 years ago, we had a private investigator who we found out was manufacturing notarized documents. Oops. Um, and in looking into it, yeah, oops is right. Looking into it further, we determined that this private investigator was a disbarred attorney out of New York and probably disbarred for the same reason that he should not have been a PI. Luckily, that is kind of a a one-time thing, and most of the private investigators I've had have been extremely good and extremely knowledgeable, and and, everyone has their forte, and certain private investigators I can call up and say, I need to find this person. They can find them in a day. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas somebody else, it may be, you know, I use them for a different purpose because that's not their forte. Well, you know, but it's I, the same thing with attorney. The same thing as what you run into. Private investigators have specialties. And uh, you don't go to a general practitioner to to do something that it takes a specialty to do. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I think it's good up front, you know. I've got certain private investigators that are great doing asset searches, and yeah. that is something that I will do in mal- malpractice cases, um, you know, because I want to know if their assets are the same at the beginning of the case as opposed to the end of the case. Oh, yeah, that's so, interesting. All of a sudden, the assets have disappeared. <laughs> oh, and, and that happens more frequently than you, than you really? recognize. Really? So, oh, wow. Yes. Well, you mentioned uh, at the... Uh, beginning of this show here that medical malpractice cases may take four to six years to resolve. And that's in Arizona where we're on a fast track. And I know California also has a fast track. Uh-huh. And we're the first two states to implement those. 
Uh, but they, you know, they still, from the time, you know, it, it may t- take me two years to actually file a lawsuit if that doesn't involve a child. If it involves a child, you know, in Arizona, I have until um, two years after they they reach the age of 18 or age oh, of majority. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, so I do have a case right now involving uh, a, a child who... You know, I've we've been watching this case to determine what the condition of the child is going to be, and we've been watching this case for probably five years, and haven't even filed a lawsuit yet because oh, I want to make gosh. sure. You know, I, I hopefully this child ends up okay, but it's looking as if the child is probably not going to end up okay. Yeah. And you can't, so, you don't want to file it too soon. Well, and I don't, I don't want to put a family through something if the end result is that the child is fine. I don't want to put the family through having to to go through a malpractice action. Exactly. You know, Paul, we're at the end of the hour. I know we could talk for hours more, but um, thank you so much for joining the show and sharing your expertise. This has really been, I think, instructive for me as well as I hope for the listeners. Well, Francie, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, and to the listeners, tune in next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators or investigator-related topics like the one Paul has just presented. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.